This episode of Off My Shelf contains coarse language and adult conversation. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Tracy James and welcome to Off My Shelf, a podcast about movies that are well off my shelf, where we go through my DVDs and talk about the movies in my collection. Um, this is usually a part where I introduce my guest, but due to an unfortunate last minute cancellation and the fact that everyone else I asked flat out said no to doing this episode, I have no guest. What? Yes. This is true. Last week, too many guests. This week, no guests. I only do extremes, apparently. Since I didn't want to skip or reschedule the episode, this led me to think about before I started the podcast and the process I went through to coming up with the format. I know, sitting down with a guest and chatting isn't particularly innovative, but it wasn't my first choice. Something I did want to do was have a specific format and scripted episodes. But the idea made me kind of tired, as I couldn't decide on what format, and it's a lot more work than just chatting with a friend. So, this unexpected situation allows me to explore what could have been. Since most regular listeners of the podcast are probably accustomed to the meandering and varied conversation, I will do my best to incorporate that free-flowing feel throughout this. I will make sure to include, you know, facts and little historical tidbits and kind of just add to my random trivia knowledge and yours as well. This week, I am talking about two movies that, until I read the DVD cases, are both based on books. The movies are Cheech and Chong, The Corsican Brothers, and Choke. I know what you're thinking. What? A Cheech and Chong movie is based on a book? Craziness. But it's true. According to the DVD rap, the movie is supposed to be a retelling of the Alexander Dumas book, The Corsican Brothers. Dumas is known for his grand Victorian tales such as The Three Musketeers, The Count of Monte Cristo, and The Man in the Iron Mask. To be honest, though I read quite a bit, I have never read any of his books. What I know about them is purely from the film adaptations. The last one I remember was 2011's The Three Musketeers which I would call a travesty of filmmaking and an insult to the work of Dumas, directed by Paul W.S. Anderson, starring Mila Jovovich, which is no surprise as half of his career is based on her. It is just a gaudy monstrosity, really, with a lot of flash and bang that does nothing. But the Corsican Brothers, though a lesser-known tale, has had many adaptations into plays, a musical, and films, including two parody films, including the 1970s Start the Revolution Without Me, starring Gene Wilder and Donald Sutherland, and this Cheech and Chong one. If you don't know, and I didn't, the Corsican Brothers is about two conjoined twins that were separated at birth, but still feel each other's pains and triumphs. One grows up to be a lawyer in Paris, and the other stays home and is a hunter and marksman. There is something about a feud, and then somebody dies... That's the gist of it. Now, you may be wondering, what does this have to do with Cheech and Chong, the perpetually high counterculture comedy duo from LA? The answer? Nothing. Nothing at all. The movie has a very abrupt and odd setup to get to this tale. For some reason, they're in a band in France and they make a lot of noise and people pay them to be quiet. They go to lunch and a woman sits beside them and tells them she has a tale for them if they pay her. And that's it. That is the whole setup. 
This woman, who is listed as the Gypsy, quote unquote, in the credits, is played by Ray Don Chong. Though a person I immediately recognized from Commando, I didn't know her name. I thought it was Tommy Chong's wife, but she is actually his daughter. I never would have guessed. Though they did mention that they were supposed to be in France during the opening sequence, I doubted it a great deal. Nothing about how it was shot or the locale spoke to me as actually being Parisian, let alone European. It seemed like a badly done backlot or a corner of some American city that just happened to not look totally American. But to my disbelief, it was listed as being actually filmed in France. What a waste. The tale begins at the birth of the twins to a nobleman in a weird scene about opening a window and a woman in labor being ignored due to the heat in the room, which ends in the arrival of twins who are just Cheech and Chong in diapers. I did not need to see that. Of course, these two babies look nothing alike, and there was a duel between the fathers. In the scene, it looks like they were using flintlock pistols, which were the weapons of choice for dueling. These were short-range, single-shot weapons. Short-range meaning they did the most damage and were most accurate within 25 yards, which is about 23 meters. But typically, within duels, you would take about 10 paces, which about 12 to 15 yards, approximately 11 to 14 meters apart. Based on the bit of Googling I did, the representation of what occurred in the scene is an insult to the pistols used at the time. At the distance they were firing, they would have hit their targets if they wished. I say that because it was very common for people to purposefully miss by firing into the ground, into the air, or at a target, obviously not their opponent. Also, it is approximated that the pistols, as long as they were well made, would misfire maybe one out of six times. So, this may be interpreted as a gross misinterpretation of a fictional duel that would have happened maybe 180 years ago. But who knows? I wasn't there. I am basing this on half-read articles on a quick Google search. Heh. Anyways... Nonetheless, both the fathers die, and the boys are given to a woman in the village. You catch up with the boys three years later, being served lunch in high chairs. I know the specificity of this jump because we get a card on the screen that tells us so. We get to see two grown men playing toddlers in bibs and bonnets playing with their food. This is where you find out that they feel each other's pain through both narration and slapstick. The scene is way too long, gross, and I really wish I couldn't see it. We get another card that flashes on the screen that says six years later. The boys are now nine, and for some reason they are walking in the woods. I may have tuned out for a sec because we are like 15 minutes or so into the film, and it feels like hours. They have a very short disagreement on the way to get home, and they go in different directions. We get another card, 21 years later. They are 30 and bump into each other in the same spot. The characters in the names in the film are Luis and Luchin, but I don't remember which is which, so I'll be referring to them just as Cheech and Chong. Cheech has been in Mexico for some reason and just got back to France, and Chong has become a brave man of the sword sworn to protect his land and his people. Now here is where they do the one joke that made me laugh in the whole movie. The brothers are catching up and Chong is talking about his deeds and decides to show his brother his new weapon. He pulls out a potato with a wick in it, lights it and throws it. 
A second later, it explodes. Cheech is amazed and asks what that was. With a stern, triumphant face, Chong responds, Bomb de terre. I know, I know, it is a horribly lame joke, but I can't resist a good pun. Anyway, then you are introduced to the horrible aristocrat, Fakiel, <laughs> with his weird makeup and poodle. Something happens, sorry, again, I may have tuned out, and they end up in what I think is supposed to be Paris to be executed. Now, when I say Fakiel had on weird makeup, it really wasn't weird for the time period. We have all seen paintings and depictions of France in the 18th century where they wear white makeup and have round patches of rouge on their cheeks and a drawn-on mole. This was not just for women, but men as well. The ideal beauty at the time was a pale, blemish-free complexion with rosy cheeks. The paleness meant you led a life of leisure, not toiling in the fields and in the sun. The rosy cheeks was a reputation of health. And the mole, I'm not sure about that, but this is where the term beauty mark comes from. The ironic thing is that the makeup that most of these people wore to give them the appearance of wealth and health was actually killing them. As it was lead-based, it caused blemishes, rashes, discoloration, hair loss, discoloration of their teeth even, and of course, death from, well, you guessed it, lead poisoning. Though not depicted in this, they would have also worn powdered wigs to hide their hair loss. The reason the wigs would have been powdered was to hide smells from disease and generally bad hygiene of the time. Ugh. Anyways, so the story continues and stuff happens. It was just so nonsensical that I was either confused or I just tuned out. There was something with buxom blondes that were the most beautiful women they had ever met. The queen's hairstylist was a gross stereotype of homosexuality that dressed like a Victorian superhero for some reason. I will note, though, that the queen was played by Edie McClurg, who I mostly associate with as Grace, the school secretary from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. But she has been in so many things. She has... 209 credits on IMDb. Also, there was this scene in the dungeon where Fakier used the rudimentary elevator, which is really just a rope and a pulley system, where the elevator box is counterbalanced by the body of one of the prisoners. As far as I understood it, elevators weren't invented until the mid-19th century. But doing a little bit of tippa-tappa, I learned that this is not really the case. I mean, when you think about it, that would make sense because as I said, it can be just a simple rope and pulley system and those have been used for centuries. But according to what I found on history.com, one of the earliest elevators in its simplest definition, quote unquote, a device used to transport people and goods vertically, was used by Archimedes in as early as 236 BC. This, of course, evolved with time, but because they were using mainly ropes to lift, they were not really trusted for transporting people, as there, would, there was a fear of the ropes snapping, sending people plummeting to their deaths. 
a fear that many people actually still have today. But then came along Elsha Graves Otis in 1852, who invented the safety brake system that quote-unquote revolutionized the vertical transport industry. I have never thought about it as the vertical transport industry. Ugh. From now on, whenever I get into an elevator, I'm going to call it my vertical transport system. It just makes more sense that way. So when you see Otis in your elevators, it is all because of that guy and his company. Yeah. Um, so through their antics, they start the French Revolution. I know the why of the French Revolution, um, but I don't know how they specifically started the French Revolution in this movie. But this also made me realize there is a timeline discrepancy in the movie that the aneuristically astute individual would recognize. Dumas's tale takes place in the Victorian era. And that era is 1837 to 1901, Queen Victoria's reign. And according to the book, it would have been 1841 when we were introduced to the brothers. Whereas the French Revolution happened in the era of enlightenment, which is 1715 to 1789. But now that I think about it, there was no king, just a queen of France. But France in 1841 would have had the, a king. Louis-Philippe I. So really, they just threw in a bunch of random historic French stuff and they made a movie out of it. Also, for some reason, by the end of the movie, Fakier is a cross between Gene Simmons' The Demon and Dr. Frank N. Furter. It was a combination of the wig, the makeup, the cape, and his BDSM lingerie gear. It was all very unpleasant to look at. The story abruptly ends, and we are back in the quote-unquote present, and the band is playing again. The movie is 90 minutes, but it felt closer to 900 unfunny, torturous minutes. Wait, 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 sorry, sorry. 899 unfunny minutes and one fun minute. This is also the last Cheech and Chong movie. Hmm. Usually, I have some sort of anecdote as to why or how I procured this film, but I don't for this one. I don't know why I have it, I have no recollection of ever watching it before, but I may have simply pushed the memory out of my head. Now, it is a whole different story when it comes to the movie Choke. I actively sought out this movie once I found out it existed. I was really into the books of Chuck Palahniuk. His style of writing is succinct yet vivid, telling tales that happen on the fringe of our society. Of course, this stems from my first viewing of the movie Fight Club, which celebrates its 20th anniversary this year. What? Which led me to find the book, thus read many more books of his. My favorite of his though is Survivor. There are some scenes in there that have just stuck with me. It is just so vivid and so clear, and I will admit, they're not beautiful, they're just incredibly disturbing. Maybe that's why they're stuck. Though his style is what I fell in love with, his content can be a lot less desirable. But I kind of enjoyed the stories that he weaved. There are a few of his books I have had to put down and walk away due to the content but I don't think any of his works are for the faint of heart. 
One thing I did not remember about my copy of Choke is that I seem to have acquired it from Blockbuster. How do I know? Well, it is one of their lock cases. You know, when they had that thing that went on the side of the case, so when you were, if you tried to steal it, you couldn't take it outside and beep and couldn't open the case. It's got one of those cases on it, without the lock, of course. And on the inside, it has their um, classic ripped ticket logo. I probably got it during one of their inventory sales. Oh, that brought back memories of Blockbuster being lit on a Friday or Saturday night. We'd bump into friends and grab candy, snacks, and pick up a movie. The best was sleepover nights when you were there with your friends in the first place. What? I think this is making me sound really old. Anyways, I dropped the disc into and press play and was treated to a weird combination of trailers that I'm unsure who they were targeting. There was The Haunting of Molly Hartley. It seems like a horror movie where the girl's parents may have sold her soul to the devil. Um, there's also Notorious, the Biggie biopic. S. Darko, a Donnie Darko tale, which retells Donnie Darko from the view of his sister, Samantha. You know the one who was the dancer? Her. And there was a video from Dr. Ronald Chevalier on the art of relaxating. If you don't know who Dr. Ronald Chevalier is, that is understandable. I only know who he is because I saw the movie that it is a reference to, which is the weird and wonderful Gentleman Broncos. But yet, they make no reference to the film itself at any point. How are they supposed to know what they're supposed to watch? But that is the one connection of the trailers to this movie that I understand. Gentleman Broncos and Choke both star Sam Rockwell. I mean, I don't think he is underrated anymore, but he definitely has not received enough accolades for the work that he has done. Even if he is in a bad movie, you always enjoy and are impressed with his performance. The movie is written and directed by Clark Gregg. Now he is mostly known for his part in the MCU as Agent Philip Coulson. At the time of seeing this movie, however, I only knew him as Richard from the Julia Louis-Dreyfus sitcom, The New Adventures of Old Christine. So, that seemed like a real departure for him as most of his roles he did back then were one-offs on TV or made-for-TV movies. But it turns out it was not his first film that was made into a movie. He had written a screenplay for the 2000s what Lies Beneath, starring Harrison Ford and Michelle Pfeiffer, a movie that didn't get particularly good reviews, but I kinda liked. This was his first time directing though. He also plays a character in this movie named Lord High Charlie, a pompous ass who takes his portrayal of a colonial character a little too seriously at a colonially themed park. Since the movie is based on a Chuck P. work, the movie gets off to a perverse, well-researched start. It is dirty, gritty, and very vulgar as you are introduced to Victor, played by Sam Rockwell, and one of his many vices as he walks into a sex addict recovery workshop and quickly breaks the rules. You are also sort of introduced to his friend who is a chronic masturbator but who is legitimately trying to change his life with this workshop. Moving at a really fast pace, you are also introduced to his dying mother portrayed by Angelica Houston, 
who I totally forgot was in this movie, who is in an institution. His next female conquest, who happens to be his mother's new doctor, and the fact that he works as a reenactor at a colonial theme park. You also get a further look into his psyche as you see how he views women. There are sexual objects that he uses and often simply visualizes naked so he does not have to connect with or view them as people. He also views love as an extreme act that exists in fleeting moments that he exploits with his money-making scheme, where he pretends to choke, hence the name of the movie, and people send him money after they save him. The moment of connection that makes them feel responsible for him is what he exploits. The movie's pace slows down, though, as you mainly jump from three locations, the Institute, his home, and the Colonial theme park. But peppered throughout this are flashbacks of his unconventional childhood and his unhealthy connection to his mother. These flashbacks help you piece together that as a child, he was regularly taken from her and put into foster care. Then she would come back and essentially kidnap him again. Those foster homes were not horror stories that you hear in the news, but they were people who were kind and genuinely wanted to help him. She pretty much brainwashed him into a highly skewed view of the world, where he can't function in a conventional way. Yes, we all have some sort of skewed view that is based on our upbringing, but this is clearly not right. But she loves him, does everything she does for him. The love is there, but it's misguided. And he continues to take care of her because of this love even though he knows that she screwed him up and he should hate her for it. Throughout this, he somehow falls in love with the doctor. It is really unclear as neither of them do anything quote-unquote love-worthy. He comes to the institution and has sex with her and leaves. They don't really talk except for about his mother and then he goes about his business. The problem really lies in the fact that, well, he can't, let's call it, perform when he's with her and because of this he spends a lot of time wondering why this is the case as he has no issues in any other situation. There is also a plot that develops where he may be a descendant of Jesus. Yes, you heard that right. There is a convoluted story about stolen foreskin and artificial insemination. All this information is lifted from the mother's diary that is written in Italian but translated by the doctor. It is really ludicrous, but that is lifted from the book, if I remember correctly. At first, he resists the idea he could be a holy descendant, questioning his life, his decisions, and generally the kind of person he is. Though he continues to resist the idea, there is still an inkling of the possibility in his mind, and he asks the question. Do you think Jesus was automatically good from the start? To his friend's girlfriend, who just happens to be a stripper. Not really expecting an answer, but she gives him one, saying that Jesus is all about the idea that people are transformed. It is not an answer he expected from someone he never treated like a person. Side note, this stripper named Beth, aka Cherry Daiquiri, is actually played by Jillian Jacob, who I mainly know as Britta from Community. And she also did that Netflix show, Love. 
but her character's name gives another religious connection. Beth, or Elizabeth, is from the Hebrew name Elisheba, meaning Oath of God. This also made me think of the great and hilarious book by Christopher Moore, Lamb, The Gospel According to Biff. It just talks about Jesus in those in-between years that are not in the Bible. You know, from birth to 33. And how he lives vicariously through the misdeeds of his best friend Biff. It explores all religions, the understanding of human nature, and really just a coming-of-age tale. You don't have to be religious to get it. It is just a good read. There is another flashback that shows where Victor's sexual deviation manifested. He was on a plane and opened the bathroom door to find a woman sitting naked. There is some talk about the excitement of finding out what is behind a door and the excitement of having sex with a stranger. It really makes little sense to me, as I guess I don't think that way, but it does to him and they get it on. He not only finds a new way of looking at things, but joins the Mile High Club. That made me think about the term Mile High Club. Are you really a mile up? No, not even close. Cruising altitude is about 35,000 feet, which is about seven miles in the air. But I guess the term seven mile high club doesn't have the same panache. This made me wonder about a couple other things. One, how small airplane bathrooms are, and though a scandalous and titillating idea, having sex in an airplane bathroom is probably incredibly uncomfortable. And two, how dirty those airplane bathrooms must be. I do my best to avoid using the bathrooms on planes because I know how gross they are. Ugh. Then we get to the end of the movie. We find out he is not related to Jesus in any way. She is not actually a doctor, but a patient. Well, she was a medical student who had a breakdown and was comatose for a while until his mother gave her a lab coat and she could suddenly function. And, well, his mother dies. When the movie was done, though, I thought something was missing. I swear there was something in the book about the doctor actually thinking she was a time traveler sent back from the future to get impregnated for some reason that would save the human race. I guess I'll have to go back and reread the book to find out. I'm not really sure what you are supposed to learn from this movie as the characters, except for his friend don't really change or evolve and their actions seem out of place. When I first watched the movie, I liked it. I think it's because I had read the book and remembered the details. So his actions in the film made more quote unquote sense. But watching it now with little memory of the details, this movie comes across as flat and pointless. The overall direction and editing reminded me of 90s indie films. Not bad, not good, but it definitely didn't age well. But if you have read Chuck Palahniuk books, you know his books are not that easy to adapt to film. They are very in the mind of the characters, and putting their feelings and reasonings on film is difficult. Also, his books are just so surreal, and that surrealism can turn people off. Fincher managed to do an exceptional job with Fight Club, and if anyone else had tried it, it could have come across as laughable, stupid, ultra-violent, or just pointless. I would love to see someone try to adapt Rant, 
my third favorite Chuck P. novel to film. Its subtitle is The Oral History of Buster Casey, and that's what the book is, an oral history. The book is presented as a retelling of events by various people and includes excerpts from a diary and playback from news reports. If done correctly, it would be such a fantastic film. After watching these two films, I am very happy I didn't talk some poor soul into watching these. And I totally understand why people who had seen them before didn't want to watch them again. They are boring, unenjoyable films that are both 90 minutes long that seem to drag on and on and on. Well, I guess that's it for this episode of Off My Shelf. Until next time, you can follow along on Instagram and Twitter at OhMyShelf, or you can send an email to OhMyShelf at gmail.com. Next time, we'll be back to business as usual. I'll have a guest on, and we're going to talk about two very, very different movies. It's a really weird combination, but alphabetically, they go together. It's The Chronicles of Riddick and Cinderella. Hope you'll be here to listen.